What up, what up, what up, family? Thank you so much for joining us again for our Masterclass Moments with the one and only Dr. Joel Kemp. Thank you so much for coming and dropping in on our podcast conversation again. Listen, but you know how this goes. This is the Reverend Dr. Dominique Aisha Robinson, the money for the people in the back. You know what I'm saying? Our our, our club people who join in our dope uh, podcast conversation. Do us the favor. Make sure you're sharing this. Make sure you're sending it to people. Make sure you're subscribing. If you stumbled upon on it. This is the Holy Ghost allowing you to stumble upon this podcast. And we are glad that you are tagging in with us. We have an amazing conversation getting ready to happen. And so whatever you're doing, if you are standing up, you need to sit down. If you are driving, you need to pull over. If you are cooking, turn the fire down a little bit because this is going to capture your attention. And we want to capture attention because we want to invite you to make sure that you are following Dr. Joel Kemp on both Facebook and Instagram, because whatever you hear in this podcast today, if you have questions, comments, we want to hear from you. It helps us develop further conversations. We want to be able to have conversations that you feel like you can pull from and engage. So follow us on jel.com. Institute for the real smart people. That's J-E-L period Institute on Instagram and Facebook. That's where we want you to follow us on our social media platforms and subscribe to the podcast. Text somebody who needs to know it. If you know a preacher, text it to them because I guarantee you it will bless them. Bringing to the virtual, the podcast, the audio stage, the one and only Dr. Joel B. Kemp. That's the crowd. That's the crowd. That's the crowd. That's the crowd. <laughs> right. Now you have to have little lighters and kind of fan them back and forth. That's right. Let me let me get my lighter. <laughs> get the like cell I'm phone at, and do it. Like I'm at Coachella. Like I'm at Coachella. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> right. So they're coming from the back in the club. We'll take off the velvet rope so they can get into the VIP section. Oh, right? did y'all hear this? Dr. Kip knows about the club saints. Ta, ta, ta. <laughs> right. You know. I won't say how I know, but just say right. I've heard stories. I've oh, heard stories. I like it. I've heard. I like it. I like right. it. <laughs> Dr. Kemp, how are you doing this fine day? This this is this is man, this is the weekend after Easter or the, the week after Easter. How are you feeling? I'm doing well. I think like a lot of folk involved in church life, there's a little bit of fatigue that set in. Oh, right, right. Because right. today so, people are calling it Easter Monday, right? They call it yeah. Easter Monday. And I thank God. I don't know how it happened, but I thank God that we got. Do you have the day off at your institution? No, I don't. I don't. But, oh. but fortunately, I, I like my job, so it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, yes. My job, they gave us Monday. It's the, I'm sorry, let me say it appropriately in case anyone listening from Seminary Southwest. It is a reading day. It is a day where we're not holding classes, but students are invited to read for the day. Um, and when I used to travel to Guyana annually, this Monday after Easter, they fly kites. Hmm. And it was my first time learning how to fly a kite. I was terrible at it, but it was my first time <laughs> learning how to fly a kite and to see how different cultures celebrate the Monday after Easter. You know, we get up on Sunday, early right. Sunday morning. You Baptist, so you probably can holler exactly. at no. You can holler <laughs> early Sunday morning. Uh, he got up, which, you know, I have questions about that three-day time period because it don't seem like from Friday to Sunday is early. But anyway, Monday... <laughs> the way we all respond to that, this this lull of, so he's up and now what? And so, yeah, so I'm glad to hear you're doing all right. We're glad that he got up. We're glad that he got up. So uh, uh, today, um, it's sort of a, a heavy topic, but very interesting. So listen, beloved, you all are listening. Um, you probably 
hopefully have celebrated, like Dr. Kemp and I have celebrated um, the the new uh, Justice Justice uh, Jackson um, and other things that have happened in society, right? Um, whether good and or bad, there's one thing we cannot take out of the conversation and it's the matter of race. Right. Uh, when we look back over how uh, at the time Judge Jackson was <laughs> questioned, disrespected. Um, I don't want to use, I don't even want to say humiliated, but attacked really. Um, there was no way we couldn't consider race in that conversation. When we consider uh, even this narrative of Jesus that we just celebrated around Resurrection Sunday <laughs> and this state sanctioned, government sanctioned death or executions of a man of color. Mm-hmm. Um, we know Black Lives Matter well before um, the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, and so race has a lot to do with our engagement with faith, our engagement with people, humanity, government, law, all these things. And so today, uh, beloved friends, we are going to be discussing the, the concept of, of race and its relationship to the Bible and help us see how at times we might be reading on Americanized racism or race in the text and the ways in which people misconstrue race moments in the Bible um, to kind of justify some things. So, so Dr. Kemp, first tell us, you know, remembering beloved, remember y'all, y'all remember Dr. Kemp is both an attorney and a Hebrew scholar. So y'all got to remember that. So Dr. Kemp, tell us, is there a place in the Bible where race begins or at least the way we look at it? Like this is where we start race conversations. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, in the Bible itself, particularly in the Hebrew scriptures, there is no concept of race as we understand it in 21st century America. It's just not there. Um, and so as you described, right, any of the attempts to say there is race in the Bible, that's us reading into it certain meanings, or in scholars, you'll get a, a fancy term um, called reception history. Um, and just because, you know, it's Hebrew hotline is part of what we do and try to introduce folks to some of the scholarly discourse. I have to give you one German word. Um, so it's it's a long one. It's Geschichte. So Geschichte, which is literally the history or the story of effects. Um, and so that's how people think about reception history, right? We're looking at how does a text acquire meaning over time and what's the effect or impact of that? Um, so you can do it kind of in, in deeper ways like we're doing with race, or we can do it in other ways like we did with Marvel Comics, mm-hmm. right? So if you ever watched, you know, in like Thor Ragnarok movies, right? There's a, there's scenes in that where they are clearly using the Bible. So there's a scene where Hela raises her new army. Yeah. And it's a it's a valley, literally, it's a pit of dry bones. My mind. She casts a spell, it comes together, becomes a great army. Well, that's the reception history of Ezekiel 37, the valley mm-hmm. of dry bones. Mm-hmm. So those are kind of the fun ways you can think about reception history. And when you watch TV, when you listen to music, listen to how the Bible and theological themes get used in it. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. So that process of reception history is really how race kind of gets brought into the Christian tradition. 
But before we even go further, I, I think let's, let's, you know, uh, definitions of race, right? So, you know, I, I'm looking at some things and saying race is a fluid concept, which I can argue against, but race is a fluid concept used to group people according to various factors, including ancestral background and social identity. Race is also used to group people that share a set of visible characteristics, such as skin color and facial features. And I think it's that definition that gets us in trouble because people don't make the distinction between race and ethnicity. So when you say that we read race into the Bible, the truth is there's really ethnicity in the Bible, correct? And not Absolutely. race. Absolutely right. The okay. Bible is, is, so again, ethnos in the Greek, where we get ethnicity, right? That deals with kind of your place of national origin. Yes. Like where your people from, to use yeah. you know, an old expression. Mm -hmm. So the Bible is very, very clear that you have to define where you're from. Mm -hmm. And in many cases, where you're from also affects the language that you speak. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. you're defined as a Hebrew. Mm -hmm. There isn't a land of Hebrew, but that's the language you speak. Yeah. If you're from Israel, if you're from Judah. Mm -hmm. And so that's there. And what happens, as you described, is kind of the American toxic construction of race gets put on top of biblical ethnicity mm -hmm. and you get the kind of horror stories that that again fill our social media feeds fill our our newscasts mm -hmm. of what happens to black and brown bodies in america in particular right yeah so i just wanted to make sure i said that out loud for people to say well no 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 we see race in the bible no 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 you see ethnicity in the bible and there's no way for us as black bodies in America to kind of, it's the hermeneutic. We have a lens that we see the text because of the way we've experienced being a person of color. And so we want to make sure we're saying, one, we recognize your experience, our experience in reading the Bible, but we have to separate that so that we can see one um, kind of the exegetical work of knowing the, the author's intention and then the people and it's about ethnicity. And so Beloved, we're looking at ethnicity in the Bible, uh, though we're calling it race. And as Dr. Kempis said, it is really about place of origin, which does dictate language spoken, cultural customs and traditions. Um, and 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 then maybe, maybe, I don't know, we can go, uh, people can talk about this later. I do believe that a place of origin um, does dictate then potentially skin color and facial features and things of that nature, which is where I think the crossover kind of gray area moves into race. Right. Absolutely. And I think the, the difference, right, in the American context, the, the lens of race has actually become what the Bible means for many people. Mm. And so it's the idea of how do we separate the traditions of interpretation from the actual traditions of scripture. Mm -hmm. right? And that's where I think that kind of reception history piece can come into play. But as you said, when you do have different ethnic origins, the Bible will comment about people's skin color, mm -hmm. but it is never in the negative way mm -hmm. that it's so often used in America. Right? So that's part of where the work of scholars, the work of theologians, the work of pastors is to help decouple those things, to get back to what the biblical text is trying to say as we apply it to our 21st century context. My, my, my. Decouple, and I would argue decolonize. Yes. So, so where, what instances or instance, maybe there's one, I'm thinking of two, but what instances in Hebrew scriptures prompts us 
into this race conversation? Like what pushes us there? What makes us say, oh yeah, we see that. What, 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 yeah. Tell us what, what's happening there. Yeah. So the, the construction of race in America starts in the creation story. Ah, so we're talking about Genesis. Yes. in Genesis. So there are several passages there. Um, we'll, we'll do one that kind of sets up kind of racial segregation or how nice. it's been used to set gotcha. up racial segregation. Gotcha. Then we'll do another one that talks about kind of blackness and why it's evil. That's constructed by a lot of American kind okay. of interpreters. Okay. So the first place you actually kind of get race mm-hmm. as people interpret it is you have to read really deep into the Bible. Mm-hmm. So Genesis chapter one, verse three. Mm. Right. You only have to go three verses in before you start seeing a tradition of race enter the Bible. So verse three, then God said, let there be light. And there was light. Yes. And then, and then verse four, then God saw light was good and separated light from darkness. My, my. Okay. So again, the biblical writers are talking about actual light. (laughs) And the absence of light that we call darkness. And, and in essence, really day and night, not even skin color. But exactly. this is where the beginning of discriminatory use around lightness and darkness moves in. Because, you know, I get sick and tired. And this is a whole random. I get sick and tired of, you know, he washes me white as snow. I don't want to be white as snow. because because I got an attitude around whiteness. And I know that has <laughs> nothing to do <laughs> with, right. with, with the real scripture. Okay. So this is the first time we kind of encounter the a scripture that is used discriminatory, discriminatorily, right. I guess is the word I should use, around light and darkness, which moves to white and blackness. Exactly, exactly. Um, so right, light gets associated with whiteness, mm-hmm. darkness and, with blackness. And rightness and wrongness. Yes, exactly, right? So mm. you get this kind of, this tradition of metaphors, like, like the one you cite of being washed white as snow. Mm-hmm. So whiteness becomes associated with innocence, with light, with good, with virtue. Mm-hmm. Darkness gets associated with, you know, vice and harm and dangerousness. Mm -hmm. And then in America, those concepts of light and dark become racialized as white bodies and black bodies. Mm. And so then, you know, there's a famous sermon uh, or infamous, depending on your perspective. Uh, Bob Jones gives a sermon right around Easter time, actually, I think it was in 1960, about is segregation scriptural? And he talks about from this passage in Genesis and he uses Acts 17 as well to argue that God's intention is for the nations and ethnicities and races to always be separate. And that the sin of America was that it forced the races to be together. Um, And so that kind of tradition runs very deeply in America. You know, I might need to go listen to the sermon. I'm not really mad about that argument right now, <laughs> but we'll move on. <laughs> right. So depending on what day of the week, I think just the idea of being away from those who cause or arson can be instruments of, of oppression and of attack. And sometimes say, so yeah, it might be nice to have a break. I, I, you know, I've asked God if there was a separate section in heaven, um, for my black people, because I just I just wanted to know. He didn't answer, or she didn't answer yet. But uh, right. but I could, man. But you know, I have wrestled with that myself as well. Actually, around the kind of selective nature of God in Old Testament, around like the chosen people, um, and so I, I have wrestled around 
um, kind of, I guess, the segregation of ethnicities and whether or not, you know, beloved community requires integration. But I, but I'm still, I'm, right. I am still wrestling with that. And I guess I'm saying that to you listeners to say, man, no, none of us have it right yet. And, you know, we all have our own personal convictions that are quite complex. Of course, I believe in inclusion and equity. Uh, I've worked at an HBCU, schools that have been birthed. Uh, I serve in a traditional uh, black church, Amy Zion Church, where, you know, there's something around just being black and remaining uh, exclusive. Uh, but then I, I currently work at an institution that is working very diligently around beloved community that is around not just integration and or welcoming, but belonging. So there's so much work that's happening being done, but I have some complex feelings around it because I'm like, Jesus did say to the woman I came, you know, came for the, for the, the lost house, right? The house, right. go get some bread somewhere else. You know, that's, I, you know, that's another conversation. That's, that's in the New Testament, right. y'all. We'll talk about whether or not God, Jesus really did call this woman a canine. Right. Yeah. But, um, yeah. okay. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, I was saying, I think I kind of your, your broader point about sort of the complexity of it, mm-hmm. right? It's that there are layers upon layers of tradition that have to be acknowledged and dealt with, mm-hmm. right? So that if we accept that God is somehow meaningfully sovereign, then these differences and appearances are not accidents, but part of the beauty of the tapestry of God's creation. Right. So the question then becomes, why have we label what God would deem good as evil. Mm. And then how do we work through that, right? So that, uh, the other Dr. Kemp uh, often says that our danger in a lot of our kind of diversity work, a lot of our integration work, is we try to make color the problem or difference the problem. Right. Difference isn't the problem. It's the ranking of those differences that is the problem. Ooh. Um, and so how do we, again, for those of us who are in the Christian tradition who use scripture and try to use it properly, I think there's a way that we can celebrate the difference and disarm the ranking that was never intended by the biblical writers. My, and that ranking sometimes is used connected to the scripture we just looked at in Genesis 1, verse 3 and 4. So I see that around lightness, whiteness, darkness, wrongness, rightness, all that jazz, and we move it into sacred and secular and holy and unholy, clean and unclean. Where do we start to connect this discriminatory practice with people in the scripture? Yeah, the, the first place that you see it is the story in Genesis 4 mm-hmm. of Cain and Abel. Oh, my favorite brothers. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> my favorite brothers. Okay. We right. see it the first time with them. Talk to us. How, where and how? Yeah. So like the 10 second summary, it's a story that's probably familiar to most, but you know, Cain and Abel are the first brothers that are mentioned in uh the Hebrew Bible, they're in Genesis 4, the task to bring an offering before God. God favors Abel's offering, rejects Cain's. Cain responds by killing Abel. My Lord. See, and I got questions, Lord. Why <laughs> yeah. did you accept Abel's and, and deny Cain's? But go on. <laughs> right, exactly. Right. The text never tells us kind of a lot of those stories. Mm-hmm. All right. So then as, as the story goes on, uh, you pick up Genesis 4 around verse 8. Um after uh, Cain has killed Abel, then Cain and the Lord have this conversation where you get the, where kind of God asks, where's your brother? Um, Cain in one of my favorite like middle school moments says, I don't know, am I responsible for my brother? <laughs> right. Uh, so that famous phrase, my brother's keeper, right, comes out of that part in Genesis 4 now. And I just so, have to be uh, an extra Negro on the line. <laughs> it's, it's not that brother's keeper line in New Jack City. 
It probably is. I know it's been it's been used in a number of um, a number of ways. And I want to admit to you, (laughs) as this little preacher woman, y'all, I have to. I think it's in there, but I want y'all to know that that was the first time I feel like I really remember. And my my brother's keeper and me having to go read. Like forget forget Sunday school, y'all. I didn't learn it there. I learned it in New Jack City when I was like. That's right. And my, my brother's keeper. And I had to go find out where this came right. from. But anyway, that's one of my, that's why I call him my favorite brothers. It's one of my favorite lines. Yeah. I actually use it in a really disrespectful way when people always ask me where somebody else is. Like when I show up somewhere and they always assume either my best friend is here or my aunt. They're like, you know, where's Dr. T? And I say, right. am I Dr. T's keeper? And that's so disrespectful. <laughs> You're not supposed to use it that way, beloved. Don't, don't, don't follow me. <laughs> right. But that's a great, it's a great example of reception history, right? How does, right? You found the Bible through New Jack City. New Jack City, New Jack City. Right. So now I won't quote the things that came to mind from New Jack City. Oh no, y'all go watch it if you haven't. Otherwise, black card revoked. (laughs) Right. That's, we're being essentialist at this moment, right? Yes, we are. So you have that famous line about, um, am I my brother's keeper? And then if you scroll kind of through that, Cain and the Lord get into a negotiation about punishment. Mm -hmm. And the punishment ultimately is that Cain is to be thrown out of the garden and into exile. Um, And around verse 13 or 14, um, Cain begins pleading with God and saying, Lord, that's too much for me. Like, if you throw me into exile, like anyone who finds me will kill me. Mm -hmm. Um, And so in response to that, petition of Cain to get clemency, to get mercy from God for the punishment for his crime, God says, no, no one can harm you. And if they try to kill you, they'll be punished. um, Most translate the word like sevenfold or with a sevenfold Mm -hmm. intensity. Mm -hmm. And then God puts a mark on Cain so that no one who finds him can kill him. And that expression, the mark of Cain, has historically been one of the first times people argue that blackness is invoked in scripture. And how do they get blackness in that from a mark? So they argue that the mark has to be something visible. Okay. Something that you can see. Mm -hmm. They also assume that the first people in the Bible were white. Oh. Erroneously so. Just get a map and you'll see where all the stuff takes place. And again, it's the continent of Africa and Western Asia. Um, so they therefore argue that if the original people were white and God put a mark on Cain, um, in the Hebrew there is simply the word ot. Uh, ot, and it, it doesn't, we don't know exactly what it means in this context because it has so many meanings in scripture. Right. It can be a sign, it can be a wonder. Right. It could be like a, I think it's probably some kind of like face tattoo. That's how I was assuming it. And, and again, this is me obviously showing my age and all of this. That that part of the scripture reminds me of Dr. Seuss' book. <laughs> where they, okay. I think it's called The Sneeches, where they had to put a number on themselves, a bit distinction. Maybe the yeah. book was used to teach us about racism, but um, yeah. it reminded me of that. So I didn't see the mark as a distinction. I didn't see a color, I should say, associated with it. I, I, I assumed maybe like a branding or I'm sorry, uh, when you burn someone, I think it's, you yeah, know. That's, yeah, that's a brand. Yeah, so that's what I assume. But okay, so people associate color with this mark on Cain, which for right. me becomes even more interesting because you assume the mark on a person who did something wrong, you make it black. Exactly, right, which goes back to the Genesis 1 passage of separating light from darkness and the metaphors of darkness being evil 
evil being black. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that that tradition in starts in Western Europe, but really, uh, to use my mom's phrase, goes to seed and flowers in early American history, mm-hmm. where it's asserted that all people of African descent are in fact descendants of Cain. And we bear the mark of that in our black skin, in our broad noses, et cetera. So that's the first place where you really see um, race being thrown onto the biblical text. Okay. Now, tell us, you know, this is our podcast. We were unable to give you all in-depth conversation, but you've written around this, correct? You, you've written something. Yes, and and it, it's a, an article or a journal entry called Racializing Cain, Demonizing Blackness, and Legalizing Discrimination. Proposal for Reception of Cain and America's Racial Caste System. I'm going to say that one more time for the people who are listening to Google this. Uh, an article, is it an article or journal? Uh, it's an article. Article called Racializing Cain, Demonizing Blackness, and Legalizing Discrimination. Proposal for Reception of Cain and America's racial caste system. And for those of you who are looking it up, the scholars on the podcast, that is found in the Journal of Perspectives in Religious Studies, Volume 48, Number 4, from the winter 2021. Uh, uh, um, uh, what do you call it? In, uh, not journal, a series, the, the edition that winter 2021, which lets you all know that Dr. Kent was working during the pandemic, beloved. He was, he was working during the pandemic, okay? So look that up. So if you want to read a little bit more in depth around it, because, you know, hey, this is scholarship, y'all. Dr. Kemp ain't going to go giving everything on the podcast. But you particularly wrote around this Cain text about concepts of demonizing blackness, like you said, legalizing. That legalizing discrimination is, is, what, is the problem we have today, right? Like, Absolutely. We looked at, we first of all, this, let's go back to the title alone, y'all. This is the preacher in me. It's three points in this right here. Racializing Cain. Y'all, right. we talked about that. That the racializing around Cain with this mark. Then demonizing blackness. And then legalizing discrimination. That's really the issue that we are dealing with now. It's, it's, the, it's, the, it's the reversal trajectory for us to right. see. It's kind of reverse engineering. Now, I want to share this with you, Dr. Kemp. You know, the woman is scholar in me. This, for me parallels, uh, and I know many people also consider Hagar, Yes. Um, her being uh, outcast, pushed out, and they somehow, uh, I mean, she is black, she's, she's Egyptian, um, and so I feel like they parallel this same racializing of Cain and demonizing of blackness on Hagar as well, it's still in the Genesis text, you know, not as close as, but I feel like this same thing happens again when we get to that portion of Genesis as well. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And I think part of, for both Cain and Hagar and Pam and any other character Mm -hmm. that gets racialized in the American context, it's always done for the purposes of exploitation, Mm. right? That you cannot separate the political and economic motives from the theological ones when we're talking about the racialization of biblical characters. Um, And so that, you know, in some settings, that's controversial. Hopefully, it's not shocking. Mm-hmm. Um, but we can certainly unpack that if we need to. But the, the idea is, you know, you have to, if you're constructing America's racial system, and you're doing this in the 17th, 18th, 19th century, theology is one of your major weapons. And so you have to be able to ground this in theology, in biblical scholarship. 
And that's exactly what we see with Cain, with Hagar, with Ham, with, again, any character that becomes the other. Mm-hmm. Um, in the American context, that otherness is almost always associated with race. Mm. Uh, and so we see that developing. So we know you wrote about it. You also ha- had a conversation or a talk, a lecture with the brothers and some sisters were present at yes. Morehouse um, sometime in March. It was uh, end of February. End of February. So Howard Thurman lecture, yeah. Yeah. So, beloved, if you want to hear a little bit more about that, visit the Morehouse Chapel Assistance Facebook page. Um, I believe it aired uh, on their Facebook page. You can go back there and kind of see, hear a little bit more around the conversation, the Q&A there. But, Dr. Kemp, for our, our podcast purposes, what are a few things you want to lift up for the listeners to know around racializing Cain, demonizing blackness, legalizing discrimination, and the reception of Cain in America's racial caste system. What are some things that we need to walk away with from here before we do more research? Yeah, I mean, that sort of, you picked up on kind of the Baptist preacher instinct of having the three points. So (laughs) I appreciate that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) So really, just hit each of the three. What is, how is this racialized? How is this demonized? And what does that mean for legalizing discrimination? yeah. Right. So the racialized piece we talked a bit about already, but just to kind of recap, right, the mark of Cain that's mentioned in Genesis four fifteen has nothing to do with race. All it is, is a visible mark. Period. That's that's all we can say responsibly from the biblical text is that there's a mark put on Cain that is most likely visible that allows someone to look at. Cain and realize this person's been marked by God. Mm-hmm. That tradition gets gets racialized. And sort of the example that I used, I think, in the article is uh, I think it was Joseph Smith in connected to the Mormon church, who talks about kind of the this group of people that lacks all the gifts of intellect, etc., and that they were marked with the mark of Cain, which he describes as black skin and the broad nose. So he clearly kind of is receiving a racialized tradition of Cain. Um, and again, that gets repeated throughout history. Um, on the second piece of demonizing blackness, right? And this is one of those times where I often challenge students when we read Genesis 4 to actually read it and not rely on what you've heard other people tell you it is, right? So that the mark of Cain in Genesis 4 is a sign of God's protection, it's given explicitly so that no one will do him harm. But once the mark of Cain gets racialized, then the mark becomes a sign of God's judgment, of God's sort of ostracization of an individual, which is part of how blackness becomes demonized. Because now Cain becomes the first great murderer, the first great danger to the human community, the first great threat to God's created order. I, you know, I'm. This is me being Americanized again. I can't help but think that America is busy trying to make Kane pay, and this is the why they respond to O.J. Simpson and other black men the same way. Like you got to pay because Kane should have paid, and we made him black, and this has been a legacy of black men getting away with being a threat to society. Absolutely, but it's Absolutely. very Americanized. I'm. I'm it's Americanized, y'all, and I might preach it. I might say it. <laughs> right. But that Americanization is right exactly what this racialization process is about. Right. And it ties into the last idea of legalizing discrimination. Right. That 
on a logical level, the disparate treatment of Blacks in America makes no sense. It's utterly illogical, unless you can ground that logic in a twisted theology. And so one of the things that I shared with uh, the brothers and sisters who were at Morehouse was a whole lot of bad laws grew out of bad theology. So what would it look like to create good laws out of better theology? And so this legalizing discrimination, one of the things I argue in the article is that one of the things that grows out of this demonization of Cain is that Black gets associated with devilish or demonic. So it's not just that we do evil, the argument comes we are evil. And so if you look at a lot of laws that are passed for the protection of citizens, they'll make references to the inherently dangerous or depraved nature of Black folk. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that I mentioned in the article, um, sort of tied together, is I'm, I'm a kid of the late 80s, early 90s is when I kind of came of age. So Rodney King mm. was my George Floyd. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. And so I remember vividly like seeing that video and knowing cousins and uncles who went through similar things mm-hmm. and thinking, okay, we got it on video. This is easy. These folk are going to go to jail. No problems. Boy, was I wrong. Mm. <laughs> right. But as I started digging more deeply into it, one of the things that struck me was that in the police testimony, in the grand jury, they talked about Rodney King looking monstrous, mm-hmm. looking like a Tasmanian devil, mm-hmm. that he was a demon who was out of control. And so where in the world does this idea of a black man being a devil come from? Well, one of the sources for that, I think, is how this cane has been racialized and blackness demonized, mm-hmm. right? And then for me, the last thing, just in terms of that legalizing, Right, the Black Lives Matter movement, which you mentioned earlier, many people say got kind of national attention with Michael Brown mm-hmm. and the incident in Ferguson. Again, listen to that cop's testimony. Mm-hmm. When Michael Brown came at me, the only way I can describe it is that he looked like a demon. Mm-hmm. So why is it that there are, you know, two individuals separated by thousands of miles in 20 years looks at two different black men and says they are demons. Therefore, I have the right to kill them, to beat them, to torture them with the protection of the state behind me. Again, I doubt any of these people are thinking about Cain. Right. But the point is, and I'll steal from my wife's discipline in psychology, that once I associate Cain with blackness and Cain with dangerousness or demonic, I don't need Cain anymore. I can just ring the bell of blackness and we think danger and then we launch into these attacks. Mm. So I think the legalizing discrimination is how is it that our, our American society functions in so many ways on the assumption that black is devilish, dangerous, destructive, depraved, and how that has literally shaped the world in which we inhabit. Oh, man. Oh, so much that we have to debunk and work through ourselves as black and brown bodies, let alone the work of our allies, you know, I, you know, um, to, to be work, to do the work and, and be done. Because the truth is, if I'm honest and 
you know, I, I call it safe space, even though this is about to go everywhere. The truth is the same way some people, particularly white people, look at blackness, like Dr. Gail Kemp said, and don't need cane anymore. I have associated evil with whiteness. And it becomes a broad stroke that you have to be careful to debunk and develop. Like for me, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. Like if people will say, how are we going to get over this? I, I believe the Holy Spirit has to work through us um, with debunking uh, terrible theologies and laws and thoughts, um, learning to love people for who they are, creating relationship, you know, revisiting, reading texts. And in some ways, almost... Um, taking away so all the sacredness we put around these written scriptures, um, which I know is messing with somebody's theology right now, um, so that we can start to live in this society in a, a, a just way. Um, but it's but there's so much work because even within black communities, we've associated evilness with blackness. Absolutely. Right. And so exactly. and now we see that in our colorism. Uh, right. So, wow, it's just... And all started with Cain, just because, and then, you know, and not even Cain, it started with the Lord. Why didn't you accept Cain's sacrifice? <laughs> God, you started this, you know? Right. And so, um, <laughs> so there's some, there's some work to be done. Some, some real work inclusive of therapy, right? There's yeah. some work to be done to work through these things. So, yeah, exactly. so. I think it's that challenge, yeah. as you said, of separating, right? The sacredness of scripture versus the sacredness of our misinterpretations. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think far too often we, we asked the Bible to bear a weight it was never designed to support. Oof. And so a lot of these kind of racialized interpretations on either side, they're not what the Bible was designed to support. But we can't dismantle them, in my opinion, until we recognize how the Bible has been used and continues to be used to do those kinds of things. Right. So when you're talking about kind of the how for some places you view whites the same way that whites view blacks. Mm -hmm. Well, there's a great article that came out, I guess, two years ago now by Dr. Junior, mm -hmm. where she looks at the tradition of African-American interpreters of scripture racializing the mark of Cain as whiteness. This is Naisha Junior? Yes, exactly. My, my. Okay. Let, all right. Thank, people, we dropped a source that I have to read, obviously, but you all need to read. Okay, Dr. Naisha Junior. Yeah, yeah. This is, this is rich. And so... You know, do you, I would ask you, do you have anything you want to, more you want to say about this? Because I'm about to ask a, a question that will kind of finalize our conversation in light of us being on the other side of Resurrection Sunday. No, no, I, mean, I think there's, a, there's obviously much more that can be said. I'm sure yes. we'll revisit this, but this is kind of sort of the, the introduction, the teaser to yeah. further conversations that we'll need to have about Bible and race in America, particularly right. as we, again, in this season of the birth of the church. Oh, that's where, <laughs> right. yeah. So beloved, remember I want to do, cause we're both professors. So we're doing this for you as if it's a syllabus, uh, here, <laughs> remember the resources article, racializing Cain, demonizing blackness and legalizing discrimination proposal for reception of Cain in America's racial caste system found in this journal perspectives in religious studies volume 48, number four from the winter 2021 edition. Secondly, going back to look at Morehouse, uh, Morehouse's um, Chapel Assistant's Facebook page uh, for a session that happened towards the end of February 2022 for a conversation. Uh, thirdly, the article by Dr. Naisha Jr. around uh, the way 
biblical interpretation of African-Americans looking at the cane, the mark of cane around whiteness. So those are three sources yes. we're throwing at you to take a look at if you want to dig into this a little deeper. Um, and obviously, we'll tell you later how you can also create, you know, book some consulting services <laughs> with Dr. Kemp exactly. to do some of that work. Uh, yeah, so Dr. One, mm-hmm. one quick thing before we go, just for the full source for Dr. Junior's article, it's called The Mark of Cain and White Violence. My, my. Um, yeah. So The Mark of Cain and White Violence by Dr. Junior. Y'all find it. Now, here's the question I want to ask you. <laughs> We're on the other side of Resurrection Sunday, where we have celebrated that he got up. Mm-hmm. But we, 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 there's an entire Passion Week narrative that literally specifies, you know, quote unquote, and, and hear me, people, I'm not being anti-Semitic when I say this. They talk about how the Jews killed Jesus, who was a Jew, correct? Yes. And this this sanctioned death around this individual that has been racialized, that we've put a lot of color into it, on it, into it. We argue around the, the stained glass windows that depict Jesus white with blonde hair and blue eyes. We read that he has skin of bronze and hair of wool. And so we put we put all these racial kind of things on it when in, in essence, you know, it really is ethnicity, but around Jewish Ethnicity is also a religious identification and, again, anti-Semitic things that we have to be mindful of when we're preaching the New Testament scripture or addressing the New Testament scripture without watering down the truth of what is being rendered to us in the scripture. How do you, Dr. Kemp, how should we, how do we reconcile that when it's so connected to our faith, right? We're on the other side of this Resurrection Sunday and much of who we are as believers is connected to the narrative of Jesus Christ. Um, some people won't even look at the Old Testament, right? Won't even look at the Hebrew scriptures, right? It's all about Jesus Christ. But if we're we're debunking these things in the Old Testament scripture, do we use those same skills to debunk that in New Testament scriptures? I would say so, yes. And I think part of what right what's at stake is the racialization of Jesus, which as you described, is its own movement. Like I, I grew up in a, literally in a, an entirely black Baptist church. And we had a, every pew had fans with a white Jesus on it. Um, and you know, at the end of the day, Christ's color does not save me. But his color does affect whether or not I think he cares and loves me. And I think that's the piece that I... I push back with some of my brothers and sisters who want to argue the race of Jesus is irrelevant. It's all about the work he did. And I say eternally, yes, but I'm still an embodied person in time. And if you've told me all along that my black body does not matter, what does it mean if Jesus either, to use James Cone's language, right, ontologically is black, or if we were to run a DNA test somehow and found out that he was actually black by kind of American racialized standards, what does that mean about our experience and how we understand that? And I think, you know, I mentioned James Cone's The Cross and the Lynching Tree mm-hmm. was one of those books that was, was and remains kind of influential for me in thinking about how can I take the social location of Jesus, the social location that I have, and see the connections through this story we've just finished. Mm-hmm. 
right? What does it mean, as you said, to be sold out by your own? Mm -hmm. What does it mean to be victimized by state violence? Because again, the cross was a Roman cross Mm -hmm. that killed him. And then what does it mean to say we serve a God that neither my brother's betrayal or Rome's abuse is the final word? Mm -hmm. And if I then live into that reality, how do I use that to transform Rome? and sort of my community as well. And I think that's the challenge of, as we move into Pentecost and the birth of the church, that to me, I think is the the challenge that those of us who are called to ministry, that's what we face. Um, And it's not an easy challenge, but if it was easy, we wouldn't need Jesus, right? And the doors of the church (laughs) are now open on this podcast. If you don't know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we've discussed quite a bit that, you know, people, we are still unpacking and still, still navigating. Dr. Kemp, tell us what's coming down. uh, What is it? The pipe or pike line? Tell us what's coming, what's coming for the rest of this month of April. Uh, What are we looking forward to? How do we connect? How do we engage? Talk to us. And don't forget, what is it when you always give us just enough light? We we can't wait for this new Hebrew word. Okay. (laughs) The the word of the day, the word Mm -hmm. of the day. (laughs) So again, as always, it's a a pleasure to share the virtual stage with the one and only Dominique Robinson. <laughs> who, if you have not heard, she won't do this, so I'll do it for her. If you have not heard her Jesus Week sermon on Genesis 22, I encourage you, it will bless your soul. So if you haven't done that, check that out. Um, so this podcast obviously is dropping on Monday. Um, as you're listening to it today, then we're coming back on the last Monday, uh, April 25th, for our next Masterclass Moment Live. It'll be at 8 o'clock Eastern time. And for many of you, if you're all like us, who've just gone through a very busy holy week, a very busy holy season, you need some rest. So we're going to spend part of our conversation on that Monday looking at how does the Bible describe rest and what are some of the things we can learn from the Hebrew scriptures about what it means to rest. So we're looking forward to having that conversation on the uh, April 25th. The second thing that's coming, we're excited that we can officially launch now the Hebrew Hotline. And the Hebrew Hotline will go live on April 21st. So that's on Thursday. Um, so again, that's an opportunity if you are a pastor or a seminarian, uh, a follower of Jesus Christ, and you want to learn more about the Hebrew Bible, its context, or you have questions about you know, how does, as you know, Reverend Robinson preached, does Genesis 22 really relate to the cross? Or if you want to talk more about kind of racialization in the Bible, it's a chance to schedule time with me one-on-one where we can have that conversation um, and just explore those questions with you. So again, that'll go live on April 21st. Then as always, our the last month of our first season will be the month of May. And we'll have podcasts on the first and third Mondays of May. Uh, talking a little bit about Mother's Day for the first one. And then we talked about Pentecost already. So we want to do a whole session about can you get to Pentecost from the Hebrew Bible? If you've been with us at all, you know the answer to that question is yes. Oh, yeah. Uh, so we look forward to taking that journey from the origins of our traditions to the origins of the church together in the month of May. Uh, so that's what's coming next. And as always, like, subscribe, call a friend, maybe even call an enemy if you think they can benefit from this. <laughs> and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at jel.institute. Uh, so we always look forward to your conversation and joining us in the work that we're trying to do here and hopefully kind of stimulate some thoughts and reactions about what we want to do as we engage these sacred texts and the life that we now have in Christ that we have just celebrated over Easter. 
So as, as we wrap up for this podcast, the word of the day is the word selim. The word selim. Selim is the word in Hebrew that first appears in Genesis 1, where it says, and God made humans after God's image. And the word image is selim. Um, uh, scholars have, we've killed many trees trying to unpack the nuances of this word. But one of the dominant theories, and the one that I leave us with today, is that when Genesis 1 talks about God creating us in his image and after his likeness, um, how it's traditionally translated, image and likeness are terms that relate to royalty. So what Genesis 1 is describing is a kind of royal investment in all of creation. So unlike the lies of racialization, you are made a king, you are made a queen. And if Easter means nothing, it means that Christ's death and resurrection means he verified your nobility with his own blood. And it is my prayer that as you go into this next season of the birth of the church, you remember the words of John that what others have called you servants, God has called you friends. And may that truth give you just enough light for the step you're on. Thank you as always. God bless. We look forward to seeing you next time on Masterclass Moments with Dr. Joel B. Kemp. Mm -hmm.